Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Since the beginning of this tale, we've discovered that although you might expect a foreign English teacher in China to have challenges with the Chinese management, what with all the different expectations of how work works and how education works, well, what you also find is that the foreigners find it quite easy to start fighting amongst themselves too. Mark and Penny, you might recall, two Americans had that bust up in brew kettle. Resulting in Penny pouring a pint on Mark, and Mark saying, "Go fuck yourself, bitch." And Kelly had problems with Arizona man because she taught his daughter, and he was typically not great at supporting her studies. And Phil, we don't hear much about because he was pretty chilled out. Well, Phil doesn't like the way the other teachers weren't very chilled out, kept causing trouble. Especially Eddie, who was by now gone, fired, sent home to America after launching classroom objects at children. Anyway, what I'm saying is that sometimes you'd expect people to be allies, but they end up turning on each other. It's time to talk about the Sino-Soviet split. Appropriately enough, this story is split up into two episodes. The first, this one, sets the stage running up to when relations between China and the USSR were broken. Then, next episode, we see how the split played out and who came out on top. It's 1961, and the Cold War has been heating up for a while now. Since the end of World War II, the capitalist world led by America has had an increasingly intense rivalry with the communist world led by the Soviet Union, first under Joseph Stalin, and now, in 1961, under Nikita Khrushchev, after Uncle Joe died in 1953. Khrushchev is a short, uneducated, brash communist from rural Ukraine, but now, having seized power. He's on a mission to pull the Soviet Union out from under the rug of oppression that Stalin had thrown across the country. Meanwhile, across the sea, a dashing young man from a family of millionaires called John F. Kennedy has become president of the Soviet Union's nemesis, America. Despite the huge gulf in the backgrounds of these two men, and the rival ambitions for how the modern world should look, Khrushchev would like a better relationship between the world's two great superpowers. Peaceful coexistence is the idea. And who wouldn't want that? Well, I can think of one guy. It's Mao Zedong. Since 1949, the red star of communism has shone brightly over China. But at first, the Middle Kingdom played a firm second fiddle to the USSR, who'd had the international influence, the spot on the UN Security Council, and the nuclear missiles. The Soviets were also, compared to China at the time, pretty developed. Red China was just emerging from feudalism, from civil war, from war with Japan, and was shunned by the American-led international order as much as possible because of its communist leader, 
the poet-revolutionary Chairman Mao. The Americans had supported Mao's right-wing rival Chiang Kai-shek in the Chinese Civil War, but as we all know, it wasn't enough to win the day and Chiang's nationalists had to retreat to Taiwan, where they continued to pretend that they were still in charge of whatever was called China. The various American administrations continued to support Chiang, but they were always lukewarm in their support. One of the nicknames for Chiang Kai-shek in Washington was Cash My Check, in reference to the constant requests for more military aid. Despite America announcing unambiguously to the world their opposition to communism in 1949 with the Truman Doctrine, they were still not willing to help Chiang retake the Chinese mainland back from Mao, and dissuaded him from provoking a new conflict, much to his endless frustration. Nevertheless, sporadic fighting occurred between the two sides of the Chinese divide, with Mao attempting to pick off a few islands that Chiang still controlled, and sometimes being successful. For his part, Chiang imposed a naval blockade along parts of the Chinese coastline. As the fighting between the Chinese communists and nationalists illustrates nicely, the supposedly cold nature of the Cold War only really applied to the two big players, the USA and USSR. Elsewhere, plenty of heat was being given off. You had the Korean War, the wars in Vietnam, uprisings and coups around the world, nations fighting off their colonial oppressors, each conflict generally with the communists and capitalists supporting one side or the other. In Cuba, the anti-American revolution began in 1953, just a few months after Stalin died. In Europe, the war-torn continent was divided between East and West, the Iron Curtain slicing through the heart of Germany. Berlin was cut in two, but landlocked within East Germany, causing a huge headache for everyone concerned. So while America and the Soviet Union are engaged in a bitter rivalry, their animosity is playing out through proxy wars. And the new kid on the block is China, who should be firmly on the Soviet side, being communist chums after all. But things are never quite so simple as that. While presidents and prime ministers came and went in the capitalist West, the communists had a tendency to hang on to their leaders until the bitter end. The British Prime Minister Anthony Eden, for example, was forced to step down after the humiliating debacle of the Suez Crisis in 1956. But Stalin and Mao each presided over full-blown famines and managed to hang on to power. Such was the nature of their systems. And famines weren't the only thing that Stalin and Mao had in common. Each came from the lower classes, although Mao's father was a pretty successful farmer, while Stalin's was an unsuccessful cobbler. Both fathers beat their children, and both Stalin and Mao were intelligent, wrote poetry, and read widely. Academic and intellectual books which introduced these young men, living under repressive regimes, to ideas of freedom and power and revolution. As Russia and China saw the declines of their imperial governments, Stalin and Mao both had plenty of opportunities to engage in revolutionary activities, agitating for a socialist vision for the future. With arrogance, ruthless ambition, intelligence and instinct, both came to power in the cauldron of conflict and went on to rule their respective countries with the iron grip of men who knew that power was as fragile as a Ming vase or a Fabergé egg. In time, both became leaders of their party, Stalin the general secretary and Mao the chairman. Other figures were the de jure leaders of the state, but in reality the two titans ruled with impunity. As communists, they both used Marxist doctrine to their own ends, 
claiming to represent the interests of the people, regardless of what the people wanted, or how harshly their ideas were meted out on the people. And they cemented their popularity, or faked it, with widespread propaganda campaigns and cults of personality, and viciously purged real or perceived enemies. Being a dictator can be a lonely business, but these two had someone who understood right next door. They could have been best buds. But it didn't go quite like that. The unspoken question of who was the communist leader to head the global movement, who had the correct interpretation of Marxist doctrine, lingered on. And then there's the question of raw power. It's something that any would-be overlord has to wrestle with, and once Mao had China in his pocket, that's exactly how he saw his career developing. Unrivaled power from the deserts to the sea. Stalin, on the other hand, well, he may be a comrade, but he was there first, and having a strong communist country to the southeast wasn't all that appealing. As a result, Uncle Joe never went beyond what was required to help out the chairman. And so, Mao's first trip to the Soviet Union wasn't the jolly you might have expected it to be. Quite the reverse. It took place just after the communist victory in China, 1949, and Mao went to Moscow to strengthen diplomatic relations, which were absolutely necessary where he was concerned, for establishing international legitimacy, getting aid and resources, and nuclear technology, don't forget. After a nice welcome and a toast to the ageing Stalin on his 70th birthday, Mao, who was 15 years younger than Zhou, became frustrated by having to wait around for a meaningful audience with him, where they could get into the nitty-gritty. Irritated, the chairman said that, I have only three tasks here, first to eat, second to sleep, and third to shit. Still, he hung around and eventually got quite a lot of what he wanted, including the Treaty of Friendship, Alliance, and Mutual Assistance. The partnership rumbled on, for despite their differences, one thing could always be counted on. The real enemy was the USA. Or was it? If things were tricky with Stalin, they were to become a flat-out disaster with the next guy, Nikita Khrushchev. Stalin died in 1953 and Khrushchev conspired his way to the top spot. And once he was there, he turned on his predecessor's legacy. Denouncing Stalin would have been unthinkable while the mustachioed murderer was still alive, and was similarly unthinkable in China. For a paranoid autocrat such as Mao, the very thought of communist leaders calling out the crimes of their forefathers sent shivers down his spine. Khrushchev didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. He dismantled Stalinism across the Soviet Union, removing monuments and renaming places, freeing and rehabilitating political prisoners and undoing some of the restrictive collectivist working conditions. And he promoted peaceful coexistence with his capitalist rivals in the West. As he memorably described his pragmatic approach, if we were to promise people nothing better than only revolution, they would scratch their heads and say, is it not better to have good goulash? It's a quote that brings to mind Deng Xiaoping's famous line over in China. It doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white, if it catches mice, is a good cat. And this comparison is quite fitting, because it was exactly Mao's fear that people like Deng would become little Khrushchevs in China. For Mao, if the choice was between revolution and food, it was revolution all the way. Especially if it was other people, and not him, who went hungry. But for all the de-Stalinization and talk of peace with the capitalists, Khrushchev wasn't admitting the weakness of the Soviet system. No, no. 
He just wanted to allow the superiority of the socialist system to be allowed to shine through, with the nasty Stalinist part out of the way. And in fact, things were looking up for the Soviets at this time. Their upward trajectory was quite literally reflected by the launch of Sputnik 1 in 1957, the first human-made satellite to fly in orbit around the Earth. And a month later, Sputnik 2, which contained Laika, the first dog in space and the first dog to die there. Take that, Americans. The United States sleeps under a Soviet moon, said a rather bullish Nikita Khrushchev. Meanwhile, that unbreakable communist bond with the Chinese had to be maintained. And so in the summer of 1958, Khrushchev went to visit Mao in Zhongnanhai, the compound within the forbidden city where the chairman lived. But if Khrushchev expected the winds of peaceful coexistence to fly east as well as west, he had another thing coming. Now a decade into his rule over China, with Stalin dead and gone, Mao felt that he was the communist big daddy, especially with this Khrushchev guy going around undoing the work of totalitarianism. Mao remembered how he was shunned by the Soviets ten years ago when he visited Moscow, and it was time for a little payback. Knowing that... With his poor background, Khrushchev had never learned to swim. Mao had the suggestion of taking a dip in the pool at Zhongnanhai. We can discuss affairs while I practice my backstroke, and you can flap around at the kiddies' end in your water wings. This kind of childish one-upmanship still plays a part in today's geopolitics. Just think of Vladimir Putin bringing in a dog to unnerve Angela Merkel, a fear he was well aware of. It was a message that Khrushchev read loud and clear, and to pour salt in the wound... The following month, Mao attacked islands controlled by the Chinese nationalists, but didn't tell Khrushchev about his plans. Ouch. It was in this context, this tentative warmth towards the West, this ice bath in the East, that Richard Nixon, the American vice president at the time, visited the Soviet Union, and soon after Khrushchev visited the USA to meet President Dwight Eisenhower. The 50s were coming to an end. And there were cool cars everywhere and Hollywood movies, Disneyland, rock and roll and the green sprouts of consumerism. America had a lot to show off. Now if you're interested in world peace, then these visits are an incredibly good sign. Remember these two powers are the new top dogs on earth. The British era is firmly in the rearview mirror. The French empire is similarly collapsing. There's only two players in town and their respective populations are propagandized into hating one another. Khrushchev lands in America like some kind of alien being, and draws crowds of dubious Americans wanting to see this strange specimen. On his trip in the States, Khrushchev learns about American agriculture, tries hot dogs in Iowa, and goes to Hollywood for lunch with Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe. He visits IBM and is particularly impressed with their self-service cafeteria, less so with the computers. He is given the key to the city of Pittsburgh. He takes questions from a free media, something that communist leaders are not generally accustomed to. And he demands the withdrawal of Western forces from West Berlin at the UN General Assembly in New York. Not everything goes to plan, though. The trip to Disneyland was cancelled due to security concerns, which the Soviet leader was not happy bunny about. On American TV, he mused, What's the problem? Is there an epidemic of cholera there or something? Clearly, Soviet intelligence was 
not well informed about the threat that Mickey Mouse posed to socialists. There was also some confusion among the Soviet team about whether Camp David referred to an internment camp, and they wondered if they were being invited there as a kind of joke in reference to Stalin's gulags. Most importantly, the talks with the Americans didn't lead to any breakthroughs, but they did agree to keep talking, to not use force, and they made a plan for Eisenhower to visit the USSR. Khrushchev went home and told his people that the Cold War conflict would soon come to an end. It was late 1959, and the Cold War still had a good 30 years left in it. Looking across the world from his vantage point in the Forbidden City, though, Mao must have been getting concerned. Not about the great leap forward that he'd embarked upon, which was pushing his people towards famine and cannibalism. No, no, someone else could worry about that. The real problem for Mao was that he didn't want peaceful coexistence with the American imperialists. He wanted to shore up his security with a nice fat nuclear missile and get on with the important task of liberating the workers of the world from their American-led capitalist oppressors. Mao didn't come from the mutually assured destruction school of thought when it came to nukes. As he opined, if nuclear war meant, quote, half of mankind died, the other half would remain while imperialism would be raised to the ground and the whole world would become socialist. But the Soviets squirmed on hearing Mao's crazed apocalyptic fantasies. They actually wanted to agree a deal with the Americans about limiting these world-ending weapons, and they went back on their promise to provide China with a nuke, which was the number one present that Mao wanted in the world. Maybe he should have stayed out of the swimming pool and spent out on some decent goulash, Mao perhaps wondered, but probably not. Instead, he went on the offensive. At a Warsaw Pact meeting in Moscow, the Chinese representative tacitly criticised Khrushchev, who in return drunkenly slagged off Mao, calling him a pair of worn-out galashes standing discarded in the corner. Then, Beijing's journals began laying into Soviet revisionism in fiery polemics. With the heat turning up, a conference of communist parties of the world was called in Romania in June 1960. But at the event, Khrushchev traded insults with the Chinese representative Peng Jun about peaceful coexistence with the Americans and whether China or Russia was the one letting the side down. Not long after, the Soviets withdrew their advisers from China. The gloves were increasingly off. Lucky for Mao, though, the 60s had arrived and a series of events would occur which would drive that wedge right back down between the Americans and the Soviets and drive the world to within an inch of blowing itself up. Could Mao be cunning enough to find an opportunity from all this chaos under heaven? Find out in the exciting second part of this two-part Sino-Soviet split extravaganza next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you.